All right. Hello, Mara. Hello. Thanks for having me. Of course. Um, so a little bit about you and the classes you teach. Um, you are in the Department of Psychology and you teach what classes? So um, I'm actually placed in the Weinberg Institute for Cognitive Science, um, which is a standalone institute. Um, and we uh, have a cognitive science major program that draws quite heavily from psychology, uh, but also from philosophy, linguistics, and econ, and a bunch of other areas. Um, and so my uh, background is actually in philosophy. So the classes that I teach for the CogSci Institute tend to be uh, cognitive science with a strong conceptual or philosophical component. Uh, so at the moment, I'm just teaching one class, which is an upper level writing seminar in moral psychology, uh, which is a descriptive and a normative area of inquiry about how we make moral decisions, but then also has to engage with quite a bit of philosophy to figure out what the moral bit is all about. Uh, and then uh, the other class that I teach very regularly is the super huge gateway course to the major, which is CogSci 200 Introduction to Cognitive Science. Uh, and we teach that one to, you know, 350. Next year, we're gonna expand to maybe 425 students at a time. Uh, and it's really meant to serve as a survey type overview to cognitive science as a field. So both the ideas uh, and the topics you can study like language, perception, moral decision-making sneaks in there, rationality, uh, and then also some of the methods. So we learn, you know, we learn a little bit about uh, Bayes rule and, uh, you know, various kinds of algorithms, things like that. Very cool. Um, now with topics like cognitive science and uh, philosophy, is there any um, sort of teaching philosophy that you, um, take on with those topics or just more generally, um, is there anything that you want your students to take away from those classes in particular? Yeah, so um, that's a really great question. And I, I, I think that my teaching philosophy hopefully extends across disciplines, um, really informs how I teach uh, any of my courses. And so the first thing I think is really important is designing a class in a student-centered kind of way. Um, so thinking always about what do I want students to learn and then what can I do along the way to help them get there? So my hope is that in all of the classes I teach that it's not a surprise, like anything I ask you to do that you're gonna get graded on. Um, we've practiced it, we've talked about it. Um, it, it shouldn't be a, a sort of nasty surprise. So I really want all of my students to succeed uh, and to feel like they've been supported along the way. Um, so what else? I think, um, I think maybe the thing that strikes me as distinctive of psychology, sorry, philosophy in particular, um, is just the fact that philosophy is kind of dense and hard. Uh, and so reading sorry about the the dog in the background totally fine. um reading philosophy is not quite like reading other texts uh and so i really try to build in explicit reading instruction just to help students along and make those 
tricky texts a little bit more approachable. Um, as a student, I know that uh, I certainly appreciate when teachers take on that student-centered approach. So uh, on behalf of students, thank you for that. Um, now, a little bit about you. Um, where are your sort of interests in, uh, in the field sort of, where is the front line of what you're doing and what the field is doing in general? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. So um, I would say that my uh, area of research uh, is moral psychology. So I'm super lucky to get to teach a class that's really squarely in my own area. Um, and I think what characterizes moral psychology now, especially now that I get to be located in the Cognitive Science Institute where I'm in conversation with people from other disciplines who are doing empirical work, um, moral psychology used to on the philosophy side be kind of old school like from the armchair like philosophers just thinking about like what are mental states and that can only get us so far in order to do moral psychology you got to do some science so um, I think the really cutting edge moral psychology is in conversation with both philosophers but also with scientists, cognitive scientists who are actually doing experiments and learning about what is going on in the head, what's happening in the brain, um, because it has to be empirically informed and interdisciplinary work for it to really move us forward. Um, and so I'm on the philosophy side, so I'm not myself uh, doing empirical work, but I draw very heavily from existing empirical findings. Um, and so at the moment, I'm really interested in moral emotions. So what it is for them to be moral, um, do they exist? What do they look like? How do they affect our behavior? Um, those are the kinds of questions I'm really, uh, really, really interested in. That all sounds like very interesting stuff. Um, hmm. Let's see. I'm trying to think of what else I can sort of ask you. Um, when I think of sort of philosophy in general, I think of kind of the weird things that the situations and weird things that humans get themselves into um, and kind of the quirks of the human brain. Um, is there anything sort of strange or interesting you've come across in your research um, or just more generally that you care to share or find interesting? Um, sorry if that was convoluted. Um, no, I, I, I get it. I guess I'm just uh, trying to think of um, something pithy and cool for you. Um, I mean, I think, um, I don't know how philosophical this is, but there is a, a really cool finding that's maybe more squarely within cognitive science um, has to do with the language area. Um, a finding I just think is kind of incredible, which is um, the fact that language as a capacity does not actually seem to be closely tied to uh, our sense modalities, which which seems really counterintuitive. So you might think like, what it is for me to be able to speak well is going to depend on my 
um, my ability like to hear and my ability like to generate vocal sounds. But what we see when people have language disorders like Wernicke's aphasia or Broca's aphasia where um, either the production of uh, fluent speech or the production of grammatical speech uh, is impaired. What you see in people who are deaf, who have the same damage to the same regions of the brain um, is reflected in their sign language abilities. So the people who have Broca's aphasia, uh, which means like producing quite halting speech, you might think that that has to do with, for the deaf speakers, this inability to move their arms fluently, but it's only specific to language. They can move their arms fluently when they're gesturing or mimicking or doing some other kind of performative thing with their body. Um, so it's specific to the production of language, um, which I just think is very, very cool. You might think it's like a visuospatial problem when it's a deaf signer who is having trouble producing coherent signs, um, but it seems more fundamental. Uh, and so we see this similarity between people who speak spoken language and speakers of sign language um, that reflects this kind of computational capacity for language that in a sense is prior to the sense modalities that are used to express that language. Um, so I just, I think that's awesome. Yes, it is. Very cool. Um, and I see we are approaching our time limit. So thank you very much for your time and all your thoughtful answers. And um, I think that's all I have for you. Thank you very much. Okay. Well, thanks.